Okay, take your Bibles. I'm going to have you turn to two different passages. You can put your thumb or, or a piece of paper in one and turn to the other. Matthew chapter 6 and Malachi chapter 3. Matthew 6 and Malachi 3. They're just a few pages apart. There are certain things in our culture that you just don't touch. You don't talk about, right? As, as children, we're taught this. You don't ask a lady her age. Right? You don't do that. Uh, you don't discuss politics. You don't talk about that. And you certainly don't ask how much someone makes or criticize how they spend their money. Right? You certainly don't do that. That is just rude. So, with that in mind then, why am I asking the question today like, does God care about how you spend your money? Does, does God care about money? That seems rather rude. Well, I'm asking because our culture is wrong. We should talk about it. God cares very much about your finances, about your money, and what you do with it. He cares intimately about it. And in order to serve God rightly and to see God bless us as believers, we must have a biblical understanding of our finances. Let's read the first text, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to kind of hop around between texts today, but I want to use this as a springboard out. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse number 19. Jesus himself said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He tells us, you cannot serve God and money. Today, I want to help us come to a biblical understanding of finance. 
To do that, we must understand the three ways that God and our finances interact. To do this, as I mentioned, we'll be jumping around to various texts. The first and foremost aspect of God's relationship to money is the ownership of money. Who do your finances belong to? Even the very question seems to indicate the answer, right? Who do your finances? It, we, we call it our money. It sits in our bank account and in our pocket. We determine how it's spent and what we spend it on. Our money is our money. But as believers, we actually must come to a very different conclusion. You see, first we see that God owns all. And all means all, which includes money. Consider Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The psalmist is clear. The earth belongs to God. However, it's not just the planet that belongs to God. It's the fullness of it. In other words, everything in it, all things, which includes what you own. God owns all things. And if God owns all things, he owns all money. So what that means then is that everything you have is from God. Everything you have is from God. This is James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What this means is that your possessions are not actually your possessions. They belong to God. They're simply on loan to you. They come from God himself. And so this means that your money is not your money. It is simply on loan to you from God. This is the biblical concept of stewardship. In the first century, wealthy families would hire a steward, an, an individual who was responsible for managing the family's possession and money. He had complete control of all of it. But it wasn't his. It was given to him to steward, to manage well on behalf of the wealthy individual. In the same way, God has entrusted you with the funds he has given you. They are his and he has given them to you to steward for him. You're to take the best care of your finances and possessions that you can because they are not yours, they're God's. Well, if we don't actually own anything that we have, but instead we recognize that God is the owner and we are his stewards, then it's vital probably that we know what we're supposed to be doing with it. What does he expect of the stuff he has entrusted to us? So the second aspect of God's relationship to our finances is God's expectations of our finances. If he has given us our money and given us our possessions, what does he expect us to do with them? Has he placed expectations on them? If God owns all our possessions and finances, 
then we're not free to use them for our pleasure alone because they belong to God. God is very clear in Scripture what He expects from us. He doesn't just say, have fun with it. He lays down some expectations for you and me with what He has entrusted to us. The first expectation we see in Scripture is this. God expects generous giving to the kingdom. God expects not, not desires, expects generous giving to the kingdom. The most important expectation from God upon the finances that he has entrusted to us for stewardship relates to the kingdom. The kingdom. We don't own our finances. They are God's, and so God expects them to be used for the furtherance of his kingdom. This is Matthew 6.33, that we are to seek first, above all, the kingdom of of God. We are to make the kingdom of God a priority financially. That's the theme of that text. He's talking about our finances. He says, don't worry about how you're going to pay for your food and how you're going to pay for your clothes. Prioritize the kingdom of God with your finances and God will supply everything else. As we saw last week, the way we do this visibly is through the only authorized, visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. Where do we see the kingdom of God today on earth? The answer is the local church. That's the place. And so when God tells us in texts like Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. This is to the kingdom of God. But note as well in Proverbs 3, 9, he says we are to honor him with the first fruits of our produce. It's likewise important that we understand that God expects us to give of the first fruits. This passage states that we're to honor the Lord with our finances. It means that we make God look good through the way we use our money. And we do this through the offering of the first fruits to God. Now in the Old Testament... This meant that they gave God the first 10% of their income, the first bill they paid, the first check they wrote was to God. In their situation, the temple, in our situation, the church. I believe this is still true today. This is what God expects of us. Now, you might argue... The tithe is an Old Testament concept. That is not the concept for today. Today, we are to give according to grace. I'm so glad you said that. Because as we look at grace in the New Testament, we consider the law of God as Christ laid out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And every time he talked about the law of God and how grace impacts that law, he did not dumb it down or make it less. Rather, he ratcheted it up. As we consider the sacrifice of Christ towards us, I would argue then that you must hold that you are to give according to the grace given you. That means that what you give is more than the first 10%, not less. Regardless, the right application of this text is that the first check you write ought to be to the church. It ought to happen every time you get paid, not just when there's a need, not just when you have excess. But every time, it is to honor God. And this giving should be generous. 
in order to make God a priority and make him look as good as he really is. God was not stingy with you. He gave his son. We ought not be stingy back. Now we understand the economy around us. And so the natural question is, how can I possibly afford to do this? I have bills. We all have bills. The electric company still wants their money. Right? I have bills. And what little I have left, I kind of like to be able to spend a little bit on myself and enjoy it. After all, I earned it. Surely God will understand I just can't afford to do it right now. Turn back over to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Beginning in verse number 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we turn? Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God addresses his people with this terrible accusation. You are a bunch of thieves. They're scandalized. They say, what, what do you mean? How did we rob you, God? They're appalled at this question. And God responds, when you held back your tithes, and offerings. You spent it on yourself and you did not give to me first. But then notice God's indictment on them. Because they failed to give to God, God would curse them and not bless them. This is the point of Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. He says, Whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He says, if you give sparingly, if you hold back, you will not be blessed by God. But if you decide in your heart to obey God and give in generosity, honoring God, he will care for you. But where is this giving to go? Can you tithe wherever you want? Just give it to whoever. Once again, the answer lies in the concept of the kingdom. The only authorized way to give to the kingdom of God is to give to the embassy of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God on earth, the local church. You can and should probably give to other places after the local church. There are good things to give towards. But the first fruits... Go to the only authorized embassy of the kingdom, your local church. God expects us to give generously to his kingdom. That's a minimum of 10% of our income. 
Secondly, though, we see that God expects us to invest for eternity. This is important to understand because we love to invest in the present. Let's be honest. It's time to look in the mirror. We love our toys. You love your campers. You love your ATVs, your guns, your vehicles, your electronics, and your books, and your events. But God expects our priority to be the kingdom. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. God and money. You cannot prioritize both possessions or finances and God. Christ stated it very bluntly. You can't serve God and money. If we invest in the now, we will lose what we have. We can lay up treasure here in houses and cars and campers and ATVs and guns and books and clothes and events and toys. But these are going to fade away. They age, and eventually, they're going to burn. But when we invest in the local church and God's people, we are investing in eternity. This investment will never go away. We can invest here and enjoy our finances for a few years while the stuff lasts and our lives endure. Or we can invest in the kingdom of God and enjoy it for the next trillion years. Which is the better investment? The answer to these options seems obvious, but often we see to our own desires first and then give out of the excess or what is left over to God, if there is anything left over. Sure. We give generously when there is an appeal for funds, and we feel good. But with the weekly paycheck, we keep the first fruits for ourselves. Why? Because we're looking for the wrong thing to satisfy us. We think that our money and possessions it buys will bring us satisfaction. And Solomon addressed this tendency. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is futility. See, money and possessions will not bring you satisfaction. Only God will. Christ said in Luke 12.15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Third, we see that God expects us to be faithful. Luke 16, 1 to 13 contains an interesting account of a wicked steward. He was simply a bad guy. And to the wealthy individual decided he was going, this wealthy individual decided he was going to fire him. The steward caught wind of this. I'm about to lose my job as the steward. He realized he was in trouble. 
So he goes into self-preservation mode. He begins to take steps to ensure that he would be taken care of when he lost his job. The master recognized this and commended him for his shrewdness. And he illustrated, this is what you should have been doing all along. And Christ makes the application to us in verse 11. He says, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous or worldly wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? God expects us to be faithful with what he has given us to steward. And faithfulness means using it for God's purposes, not our own. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This is a requirement of us. Money is not something to be taken lightly, nor is it something to be hoarded. We are to recognize that it is a gift from God to be used to faithfully advance his kingdom through the local church. But the problem is we tend to love money. And so Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And just a few verses later in verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So don't look at your finances to solve your problems. Don't state that you don't have enough to give to God. Give to God out of the first fruits. Yet we don't give blindly. As we give, we give cheerfully and with joy because there are significant promises God has made for finances. And so lastly, I want to look at God's promises. Because we do live in an age where money has tightened up. You go to the grocery store and you spend hundreds of dollars and you come home with three things. We recognize this. But in the text that we have looked at, we learn some important things. One, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. In the text in Malachi 3, when God, accuses, when God accuses his people of stealing, he lays down a challenge in verse number 10, Malachi 3.10. He says, bring the full tithe into the, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the he windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He says, bring in your tithe, that minimum of 10%, to the storehouse. Now, this was an agrarian society. They didn't often exchange coins or money or you know, digital currency. They exchanged goods. So the first 10% minimum for them was 10% of their crops that they brought to the temple and placed them in a storehouse there. Today in a financial society, it means that we bring our full tithe of our money to the local church and give it there. And God said that he wanted them to put him to the test. Test me and see if I'll be faithful to you. They failed to give to God because they claimed there was nothing left to give. They couldn't afford it. And God says, give and see if I don't provide for you. In other words, give and watch 
may open the windows of heaven and meet your needs. Now understand, God's not promising you that if you give to the church, you're going to have a BMW in your, in your driveway tomorrow. It's not what he's saying. But he is saying he will meet your needs. Paul relates this account to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 9, 8-12. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Christ promises us, says it another way himself in Matthew 6 there. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat and what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He says, Listen, I understand. It's tight. You're not sure how you're going to pay all the bills. You're not sure how you're going to be clothed. You're not sure how you're going to buy the food. Stop worrying about that. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added unto you. You might say, I am in incredible debt. Step one to getting out of debt is giving to God. Stop making finances your focus. Stop making the excuse that you can't afford it. Instead, recognize that if you give to God, he will provide for you. Seek God's kingdom first and your needs will be met. Pause for a moment and give a testimony to this, not for my glory, but for God's glory. Fifteen years ago, my wife and I were on the verge of bankruptcy. We had collectors calling, demanding money. And my response was, have at it. There is none. We questioned, how do we get out of this? And we were challenged with Malachi 3 and Matthew 6. So we made the commitment. We're going to prioritize God first. And we began to give to God first and God met needs when we needed two plus two to equal 509 it equaled a thousand looking back through our books it doesn't make sense and that's what makes it glorious today as you look at your income and your outflow and as you look at the rise of everything and you question how can I help the church the answer isn't how can I help the church the question is How much can I give to the church for God to bless me? How much more can I give? And then up it more. 
And every year since then, my wife and I have committed to give more, regardless of whether more income came, to always up it every year. And every year, God provides. Every year. I challenge you, put God to the test. See if he won't work. How big is your God? How big is he? Another thing we must understand with God's promise is that you cannot destroy eternal investments. This is a wonderful promise. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. There is no inflation in heaven. There's no stock market crash. You can't lose it. Stuff doesn't break in heaven. It doesn't rust. It doesn't destroy. For those of us who are older, you think back to your first car. You're so proud to get it. Where's it now? My guess is it's a cube. Or melted down and turned into something else. And in the end, all those things you have, that wonderful ATV you just bought, that camper you are so proud of, that home that you idolize, that bank account and investment portfolio that you think is fantastic and you have worked so shrewdly for, one day I've got bad news. It will burn. But when you invest in the kingdom of God and lay up treasure in heaven, you will arrive and discover riches for eternity. Will you invest in the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, maybe 70 years? Or the next trillion? You cannot destroy eternal investments. Lastly, you will find contentment when you view finances biblically. When I recognize that my use of my finances reveals that my reveals my heart, that my finances are not actually mine but God's, and that He will supply my needs, it brings incredible freedom. I begin to give generously to the kingdom and watch God work. And the more I do this and the more God works, the more joy and satisfaction I come. And it gets exciting. I wonder how God's gonna do it this time. I can't wait. And I don't have to worry. I got these bills coming up. How am I going to cover it? There is no worry. I don't say, how can I cover it? So I've got these bills coming up. I'm so excited to see how God's going to do this one. It's going to be pretty neat. You don't have to worry about your money at all. Inflation? Whatever. That's fine. God's got it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Selling one's no big deal. Right? It brings incredible freedom. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when we give generously and see him work and give in joy. It brings incredible freedom. Consider Philippians chapter 4. Paul in his own testimony says, I rejoice, in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have, re you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We often hear verse 13 out of context, right? Mentioned a couple weeks ago. You'll hear it today probably if you watch football when some guy, how did you manage to carry that pig gut across the chalk line? I can do it through Christ. That's not what this text is talking about. It's actually talking about contentment and finances. A right view of finances brings contentment. I can obey God even when it means I will not have this world's goods because I know God will supply and eternity's coming. This world stinks. Why would I invest in that? As we conclude, let me make some statements. I, I have heard and even seen that this is a generous church. When there's a need... An opportunity is brought, that need is met. And I've found that true and incredibly commendable. But God expects much, much more from us. God expects us to give regularly the first fruits of our earnings. When you serve, that's not your giving, that's your serving. Those are two different things. Giving is giving. God expects us to give regularly. Not when we have excess. Got a little extra. I think I can give today. But out of the first fruits. And when we do this, we have the promise. I will meet your needs. All these things will be added to you. Let me give you five so what's today. One. God expects us to give to the church first. That should be the first check you write. This is not me saying it. I, I don't particularly enjoy preaching these messages. This is God's statement to us. Number two, God expects us to give to the church generously. Not looking and saying, how little can I give? Saying, how much do I want to test God this month? Because number three, you can't outgive God. You can't do it. He will meet your needs. Number four, your checkbook, or nowadays, if you don't write checks anymore, your ledger, reveals your priorities. You can tell me all you want that you love God. But what does your bank statement tell me? Christ said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve them both. You need to choose one. But if you choose God, number five. God will always, always, always meet your needs.
I have put off this message for a while, hoping that things would straighten out. You see, this church should not be struggling financially. We should not have to present a bare-bones budget and hope we make it. I don't know what people give. I don't want to know. I have no idea. But I do know we have 60 family units in the church and an average income in our county of $40,000. I'm not a math whiz, but I can do that math. And so I am left to conclude that we're not obeying God in our giving. God will not bless you. And God will not bless this church until we recognize that it's not our money. It's God's. And give generously to his kingdom. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Will you be a recipient of God's blessing or will you make excuses and rob God? The choice is yours. Father, we thank you for the way you generously provide. Lord, messages like this are not enjoyable. They're incredibly hard. And they hurt. But Lord, I'm reminded that the wounds of a friend are faithful. That true love speaks what is right. Lord, I ask that we would test you with our giving. That we would learn what it means to see you work in an amazing and glorious way. That we would not value this world, but the world to come. Forgive us for our sin and help us to do right. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.